0: Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, just right after Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're looking at Philippians 1, 6 through 8, Philippians 1, 6 through 8. Before we hear God's word read, let us go again to him humbly in prayer. Our God, we thank you for this revelation, we thank you for this light that you have given us We pray that we would see Christ in this text as he is clearly shown. We pray that we would grow in likeness to Christ as a result of hearing this text with faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Philippians 1, 6 through 8, hear now the word of God. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you allow me to be a bit paradoxical for a moment, there is a lack of confidence and a lot of it. Take whatever is burdening your mind, your heart, even now, and you know that you likely have little confidence in that thing that has burdened you, in that person that has burdened you. Consider several examples. Consider your own money. Perhaps you have very little confidence that what you have in the bank account will be ever strong, and will guide you into retirement. It will help you handle all of your bills. It's something, but it might not be enough. Perhaps you're putting all of your eggs in that basket, your money, to provide you with with that security, that stability that you need, that confidence that you can keep going. Consider a car. Perhaps you have little confidence in the car that you have. I remember when I was a teenager, I had a 1990 Dodge spirit whom I named Thrasymachus. If you know Plato's Republic, you know the the character. Thrasymachus, long name, I called him Thras for short, and I had every reason to do what I always did. As soon as I got in the car, I turned the key, turned the ignition on, and I would pray. And I would pray that he would get me from point A to point B, and oftentimes he did not. Many of us know an unreliable vehicle. We have very little confidence in that vehicle. Surely the vehicle will will deteriorate. It will not become as confident. It will not become as trustworthy as we have known it to be. Or consider the economy. Perhaps you have little confidence in our own economic situation. The cost of living causes you to tighten your belt a little bit. How are you going to pay bills given the present economical state? Perhaps the present Government, our own president, does not bode much confidence in you, does not instill much confidence in you, and perhaps sees only the lesser of two evils in your mind. Maybe the next president or next presidential candidate will not give you the confidence that you really hope he would give you. You're putting all of your eggs in that presidential basket. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what or who it is. You might have very little confidence in that person, in that thing. I'm getting most serious. What about God? How confident are you in God? Maybe you wonder, does God really know what he's doing? Is his plan really as good as he says it is? Are we really heading in the right direction, contrary to appearances? Can we have full confidence in the Lord, to do what He said He would do. And we live with uncertainties all the time, and because of our own circumstances, because of the people in our lives, and because of our own, our own abilities or lack thereof, we lack confidence. And I don't mean that we lack confidence in ourselves to carry through with our goals. That is a spiritual given. We should always keep lacking confidence in us ourselves. We should always say with Paul, who is sufficient for these things? We should always lean upon Christ and the Spirit for any spiritual good that we might bear, any spiritual fruit that we might bear. It's all because of Jesus, and none of it is because of us. I mean that at times we lack assurance, full faith. And full throated confession that all is well and that all will remain well and all will be well in the future. People let us down. We are not infinite in knowledge and wisdom. The future to us remains unclear and all the rest. But here, you would think that Paul is not in tune with the world because he cannot emphasize any stronger the confidence that he has. Which then begs the questions, why does he have confidence? What gives him so much confidence? Confidence in what? Or confidence in whom? And since Paul is now in heaven, we can say, well, can we have this confidence? Is Paul's confidence transferable to us? Or is this unique to Paul and the Philippians? Can we have what Paul is praying that the Philippians would have, that Paul is confident that the Philippians would have? The message this morning here is, because God begins and completes the good work of salvation, Christians have confidence of this completion despite trying circumstances. Look again with me at verses 6 and 7. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So in these verses, which prepare his pen for prayer, Paul lays out his confidence. Consider the content of his confidence. Confidence. He who began a good work in you, he says to the Philippians, will bring you to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll return at the end to this good work, but that's what Paul is talking about here. He knows that he who began this work, namely God, this is a good work, namely salvation, that this God will not just begin it, but he will complete this good work of salvation. He will finish what he says he will do. The fulfillment, the completion of this good work, takes place at the day of Jesus Christ. So here he anticipates what he's going to write to them in chapter 3, verse 21. The confidence and the full hope that we all have that one day our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like the body of Christ, that glorified, resurrected body. That's the content in brief. But let's consider Paul's own circumstance. Paul's in prison. Do you remember that? He mentions this in verse 13. He says that my imprisonment is for Christ. He is at present, at the time of writing this letter, in prison. Now, 10 years previous to this letter, he and Silas were in a Philippian prison. We read about that we started this series in Acts 16. We saw them in prison and rejoicing, singing. But now he is in Rome. Now he is under house arrest. And I say this because we seem to forget his trying circumstances, and we seem to forget about his trying circumstances because of the joy of this letter. You say, wow! What a what a letter full of joy. Do you see how he loves these Philippian Christians? Do you see his joy? It is exemplary. He is carrying on pastoral business as normal. Therefore, we think, his conditions must be normal. Because in order for a pastor to serve joyfully, the conditions have to be just so, right? Of course, that's faulty thinking. He was in prison, and this was not Paul's first imprisonment, nor will it be Paul's last. Now, just to give us an idea of where Paul was and what he was experiencing, the traditional site of Paul and Silas' imprisonment, so 10 years before this letter was written, shows an underground room, if you can call it a room, of about six to eight feet long, maybe four feet wide, and obviously there are no amenities. Just down in a hole to be forgotten. And this wasn't the most severe imprisonment the current one from which Paul is writing this letter, wasn't the most severe imprisonment that he will suffer from, but it was something to write home in Philippi about. He couldn't go where he wished. He was in chains. He wanted to be free just for the gospel. And we'll see next week that it's actually, even though he is bound, the gospel is not bound. Even though he is not free to move about, the gospel is um, is free. And it goes forth and advances. Paul was completely dependent on the people of God to supply his needs. Ever the pastor, however, he really doesn't think about his own needs. He's thinking about the Philippians. He's thinking about what they need. He's thinking about how he can encourage them. This is the reverse, isn't it? Like Paul's in prison, and he's thinking about how he can help these people who are not in prison. They're the ones who should be helping him out. And they have been, and they continue to do so. But that's what he's thinking. He's thinking about them. He's thinking about his love for them. He's thinking about how certain he is of God's work in them. He's confident about the Philippians. His knowledge is a sure knowledge. That's what he says in verse 6. And I am sure of this. I'm sure of this. So here's a confidence in the past, but it has present persuasion. Persuasion. So he was, he was sure of it back then when he had it, and he continually is persuaded that God who began this good work in them will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And this confidence is fourfold. Real confidence is robust. It is full. It's four things here. It's sure knowledge. It's loving affection, committed action, and divine approval. Let's look at each of these. Again, he says, I know, I'm sure of this. He says, I know for a fact, Jack, that God will finish his work. I know it. And he follows us up with, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Now here the ESV does not do us a service by translating the word feel. It is right for me to feel this way. As you know, Sometimes there's this stark uh, contrast between knowledge and feeling, and when we subordinate something to the area of feeling, well, then there's a lot of uncertainty, isn't it? Isn't there? I feel like things are going to, I feel like things are turning around. Well, are you confident that they're going to turn around? No, I just kind of feel that way. That's not what Paul is doing here. Paul didn't say, I'm sure of this, and then, I feel. He's not doing that. He's not... Talking at both sides of his mouth here. The King James has it right by saying, "I it's right for me to think this way. This word means think. It means mind. It refers to what, our, what we are thinking about, what our mind is on. Consider several examples. Just in Paul's letter to the Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, be of the same mind. That's that word that we, hear, we see here that's translated Feel. Be in full accord and of one mind. Be together, united in mind, he is saying. In Philippians 2.5, he says, have this mind among yourselves. He wants the Philippians to have a collective mind, a united mind, a united congregational mindset of how to live in unity, in harmony with one another. In Philippians 3.15, he says that the mature have a particular way of thinking, Yes, the mature have a particular way of feeling as well, but he's not focused on the feeling here. He's focused on the knowing, on the thinking. Those who are mature have a particular way of thinking about God, about themselves, about one another. Philippians three nineteen, he says, the wicked have their minds set on earthly things. The wicked focus on the things below, whereas. The righteous, those who are in Christ, the saints of God, they focus on things above. They th- focus on things from heaven above. Their minds, their attention, their thoughts are Godward. In Philippians 4.2, he says to Euodia and Syntyche that they must agree, but literally it's they must think. Get Euodia and Syntyche together to think the same thing in the Lord, that they might be one with one another. In Philippians 4.10, he says, you were concerned for me. He knows the Philippians' mental attention was Paul word, if you will, that they were concerned, they were anxious for him, They, they wanted to know how he was doing. Their thoughts went out for him. And so this word speaks of rightly ordered thinking. How to think aright, how to think properly, how to think biblically, how to think with Jesus in mind to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so there's a unity of living with one another because of a unity with God. And that begins with having the sure knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God has begun a good work in them and will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Begins with knowledge. Do we have this sure knowledge for ourselves? Do we have it? Are we confident? Can we say of ourselves? I am sure of this, that God who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of it. If there's one thing that I'm sure of, it's that that God who begins will complete the work. That's what Calvin says is essential to this to, to faith is that confidence that there is only one Savior. There's only one person who can save you from your sins, Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of your confidence. That it's Jesus, it's not you that can save you. That he has begun this work and he will keep saving you. He will keep sanctifying you, he will keep growing you, and he will ultimately glorify you. Do we have this sure knowledge for ourselves? Can we say of others, as Paul does with the Philippians, I am sure of this For you. I'm confident of this for you. As long as you say that you are in Christ, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to say, yes, God who began this work in you will complete it. Contrary to appearances, contrary to what's the struggle, the conflict, whatever it is, I'm confident He who began this good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Well, how can we have this sure knowledge? Do we look inside ourselves? You know how much of a fool's errand that is. Just inspect your own feelings. On any given day, you might say, I'm not confident. Maybe maybe today you are most confident. After all, this is the day on which we celebrate the Lord. We worship him. We are particularly focused on his word and singing praises to him. And we say, this is the day that I have the most most confidence in the Lord. And that he will do what he says he will do. The Tuesday comes around. Wednesday comes around. And the week has been very difficult. And maybe you are tempted to say, maybe, maybe God won't working in me and through me. You know, I really messed it up. I really messed things up with, my, with that sin. Or that trial that's come my way that I didn't expect is shaking me. Well, how do we have this confidence? It's not by trying to read the signs around us. It's not by looking inward and say, how do you feel today? I feel pretty good. You can feel pretty good and not, and not have confidence or shouldn't have confidence. I mean, you think of Jonah. He felt pretty good in that boat, that God was pleased with him or that nothing bad was going to happen to him. But he had a false peace, didn't he? How do we have this sure knowledge? It's not in you. It's not out there. It's right here. Do you trust God's word more than your own word, more than your own Feelings that can deceive. Pray that that you would trust God more than yourself. That's how we can have this sure knowledge that God who began this good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But there's more than that. Verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul has also the affections in mind, not merely the mind. Remember, Paul is not just about this, having knowledge. And I've talked about this, about the, the head and the heart, uh, as, a, as a wrong kind of distinction. Okay, We are whole persons of mind, of thoughts, of affections, of will, and they are to be integrated. He says, "'I'm affectionate for you. "'I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus.'" This yearning, this longing speaks to an earnest desire to see a future reality come to pass. And over and again, this is used to speak of longing to see someone. In Romans 1.11, he says that he longs to see the Romans. Why does he long to see them? Because he wants to impart to them spiritual gifts. I take that as they didn't have... The spiritual gifting that the Holy Spirit gives gave at Pentecost, and He wants to give them that set of spiritual gifts, and He can't wait to go there. He's longing to go there that He might impart those special gifts of the Spirit. In a, in Philippians two twenty six, Paul mentions how Epaphroditus has been longing to see the Philippians. Remember, Epaphroditus was a Philippian himself, but he carried this letter to Paul in prison under house arrest and. Epaphroditus and Paul are having a conversation, and Epaphroditus tells Paul how much Epaphroditus wants to go back to see the Philippians because he loves them so much. And as we'll see, Epaphroditus even was, had a near-death experience. He was so sick because of his ministry. He almost died for the Philippians. He's longing to see the Philippians. In 1 Thessalonians 3.6, the Thessalonians longed to see Paul and Timothy, they loved Paul. They loved Timothy. They loved the ministry from Paul and Timothy, and they want to see them again. Second Timothy 1.4, Paul, with tears, longs to see Timothy again before Paul dies. He wants to see this young minister in whom he has invested so much, to whom he has given so much spiritual counsel. He says, I want to see you again before I go to be with the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5.2, Paul says that we all long to to put on our glorified bodies. Surely you long to put on glorified bodies. You long for that resurrected body, right? You know how, how weak this present body is? How imperfect, how prone to fall, prone to sin you are in this body? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And you then long to put on this immortal body garment this new clothing this new body that's the language that paul is using here in philippians i'm longing to see you we're longing to to put on these glorified bodies we've already come to this this term affection before we saw it in his letter to philemon it just literally it means the guts the intestines the the bowels and it's a metaphor for these spiritual innards if you will Paul is saying that his spiritual guts are firmly placed in the bowels of Christ. Paul is saying that he loves the Philippians with the guts of Jesus. As much as it is humanly possible that Paul's affections can compare to the affections of Christ, so he feels for them. Yes, he is confident that he who began a good work will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ, and he feels for them. He longs for them because of the strong intestinal love that Jesus has for the Philippians. From the deep recesses of the heart of Christ come pouring into Paul's heart the compassion and inflamed affections of Jesus for the Philippians. The example and the energy of Christ's love for the Philippians, then, are what move Paul to love the Philippians with deepest, warmest affection. Remember, James 4, 5 says that God yearns jealously over the spirits that He has made. And our God longs to be with us. He is joyful that one day we will be with Him. He desires to be with us. He knows that it will happen because He has decreed it. And He is working out all things together according to the counsel of His will for His glory and our good. He has made our spirits, and he yearns jealously over our spirits. And Paul is saying, I have these affections for you, Philippians. Paul was no unfeeling stoic. He was clearly affectionate for his people. And the Philippians are to demonstrate those affections for one another as well, as, we keep, as we'll keep seeing. The question for us right now then is, do we share these affections for one another? Maybe we have that confidence that he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ, but maybe there's a disconnect between this sure knowledge and the loving affection. Do we share these affections for one another? And if we don't, do we just call it a loss? You we say, "Well, I, I'll never yearn or long to be with my brothers and sisters at Cross Creek." Or do we pray that our affections would be towards one another? How have we demonstrated? How have we shown this affection of Christ Jesus for one another? This confidence is a sure knowledge. It is loving affection. It is, thirdly, committed action. Paul says, I hold you in my heart because you are all partakers with me of grace. You're in my heart because they are partakers with Paul of this grace. He says that they have partaken of Paul as a prisoner. They have partaken of Paul as an apologist, as that great defender of the faith. They have partaken of Paul as an evangelist, They have known him to be prisoner. They have known him to be the defender of the faith. They have known him to be that great evangelist. That is to say, they have identified with Paul despite the shame and dishonor the world is heaping upon him. Just face it, if somebody's in prison, your first reaction is, well, what do they do? Or, I don't want to be near them. And a lot of people were turned off by Paul's imprisonment. Some were using it to their own advantage and to defile the name of Paul, as we'll see in the coming uh, verses. But the Philippians didn't do that. They didn't throw away Paul. They didn't cast him aside. They didn't say he's damaged goods. They identified with Paul. And so then they also took on that shame and dishonor that the world heaped upon Paul. They would then, it would be heaped upon them. Like Moses, they considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth, than the treasures of Philippi, and the citizenship with Christ, firmer than that of Philippi. These dear saints stuck with Paul through thick and thin, and mainly thin, and they even sent their beloved Epaphroditus and their own monetary treasures for this man. They loved him dearly, and he loved them dearly. Just consider marriage vows. What does the groom say to his bride? I take you to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving husband, your faithful husband, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, just for a few days. No. So long as you both shall live. The husband says, I'm committed to you until I die. And the wife says, I'm committed to you until I die. That's what's going on here between Paul and these beloved Philippian saints. Why? Because of grace. Because of their union with Christ. For you all partakers with me of grace. Beloved, the bond of grace is the tightest of bonds. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the bond of grace is the tightest of bonds? That your adoption as sons and daughters in the Son is a firmer foundation of your togetherness than being blood relatives, being friends for X number of years. What joins us Together is that grace that is given to us by Jesus Christ through his spirit. With your lives, have you shown others that you are fellow partakers of this grace? In recent months, how have you demonstrated union with one another? Have you washed your hands of that person because of what he said? You washed your hands of that person because of what she did. So that's the bridge too far. It's one sin too many. It's one sin too serious, one sin too grievous. We're done. Don't want to deal with toxic people. It's very easy to just give that label of toxicity to someone that you disagree with. So then, because you can rationalize, well, I don't want to be around toxic people. That's what the world's message is. You know that, right? Boundaries and all that, and that's crept crept into the world. Can you imagine Jesus Christ saying that to you? There's too much toxicity in this person. I didn't know all the sin in this person's heart before I got involved. I mean, I said I was committed, but I have second thoughts now. I can't believe this person said this. I can't believe this person did this. Is that the way? Is that how we are supposed to be towards one another? Committed for a few hours, a few weeks, a few months, a few years. You have all my heart until you do something wrong. Until you, you hit the magic number of sins. How have you fought to be fellow partakers of grace with that sinner? We all all fail at this. I fail at this too. We're never perfect at being fellow partakers of grace with that sinner, with that sufferer. We all need to grow in this area. Have we fought to be fellow partakers of grace with one another? Or... Has that sin just driven you away? It's redirected you. I can't deal with this person anymore, or maybe that person's suffering is is too awkward for you to invest in because you don't know what to say. Be with them. You don't have to say anything. Just be with them. We have countless reasons not to be involved, not to be committed, but we have one reason to be committed. Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Look at the fourth effect or feature of this confidence. It's a divine approval. He says, verse 8 For God is my witness. For God is my witness. There's some bold words right there. For God is my witness. You see how bold Paul is being here. So sure of his knowledge for the Philippians, so affectionate for these saints, that he calls upon God as his witness. Now, he has done this before. He has called upon God as his witness in Romans, for instance. In Romans 1, verse 9, he says, I mention you without ceasing in my prayers. God is my witness. God knows and I'm always praying for you. Romans 9.1, he says, I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. God is my witness. God, the author of truth, is witnessing that I am not lying to you. Those are some bold words. And he repeats that boldness here in his letter to Philippians. In verse 8, he's saying, I assure you, Philippians, that I hold you in my heart. I have put on the witness stand God himself the one who alone knows the hearts of men, to peer into my heart and to testify publicly that you are in there. That's what he is doing. Now we've all seen or read those legal thrillers, haven't we? Those courtroom scenes when the star witness is on the stand and their testimony reveals the smoking gun. Right? Now, it's different, I'm sure, in real life. We have one lawyer visiting here this, this morning, and I'm sure he could testify it's different. But that's not the stuff of of movies. In movies, in the books, you see that witness stand. person says it. Wow, that's case closed, right? But then what happens? There's that other attorney, and it's now his time to cross-examine. It's now his time to ask the questions. It's now his time to probe ever deeper into this person's testimony, and then now this person has to answer all those questions that he wasn't comfortable with answering or that he had omitted certain things conveniently and then the case crumbles. All because the prosecuting attorney did his duty. The cross-examining or defense attorney, whatever it was, he, he, did it, he did it, and the case crumbles. And having witnesses is essential in the Bible. Over and over again, Old Testament, New Testament, it's, you have to have at least two or three witnesses to establish the case, to confirm this case, to prove that this person is guilty. And Paul is... Saying that his affections for these Philippians, his loving commitment to them, they're on trial in a sense here. And God does not become flustered on the witness stand. God knows all things. He knows the heart of Paul, He knows the knowledge of Paul. And Paul is so confident, so bold, he's saying, If I put God on the stand right now, He would testify to you that you are my heart and that I love you and that I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I wonder how you answer that question I asked a few moments ago. With your lives, have you shown others that you are fellow partakers? Maybe you say, I've done pretty well. Maybe you say, I'm actually, I'm I'm an example. My conduct has been exemplary. Let me just tell everyone about how I have loved one another so well. Are you willing to swear to it? Are you willing to say, God is my witness, that I have loved you, that I have held you in my heart perfectly? Can you swear to it? I know I can't. Although that's my prayer, that's my desire to say, yes, God can testify to you all. The great affection, the great yearning I have, the great knowledge and confidence I have, how I've demonstrated love for you, put God on the stand right now. These are sobering questions, aren't they? Surely they should drive us back to that throne of grace, asking God for more grace, increase of joy, increase of affection, increase of confidence, of knowledge, of love for one another, of actions, of committed actions for one another. Surely this is driving us back to Jesus. We all, dear saints, can have this confidence that God completes his work in us. Grow in this confidence by filling up your mind with his sure and certain word. Flame your affections for God and for one another by reflecting on the affections of Christ Jesus for you. That's how you grow in love for one another. It's by feeding your soul the love of Christ for you. By turning page after page and seeing how Jesus loves you. How God in Christ has been tender-hearted, forgiving you, having full compassion for you, and that he yearns jealously over over your spirits, that he rejoices over you, that he is content in his love for you. That's how we grow in our affections, not only for God, but for one another. Live with full trust, act with full faith in your Savior, doing your duties as his servant, knowing that you belong to him and that the bonds of grace will never be broken by the works of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Call upon God as your witness to this confidence because he's always faithful to his word. Depend on the promises of God. Pray his word back to him. That's where you get the confidence that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that you can grow in this confidence, the reason you can flame your affections, the reason you can act with full, with full faith and trust, the reason you can call upon God in prayer, despite any trials, despite whatever trials come your way, the reason is one word, God. He is the ultimate grounding for this confidence. The Philippians well knew that God had begun the good work in them, All good works, dear saints, find their starting point in heaven above, coming down from God himself. It was known to the women at the Riverside Prayer Gathering in Acts 16 that God was at work in them, through them. Lack of male leadership was not going to stop the head of the church, Jesus Christ, from building his church. There was no mistaking who opened Lydia's heart to hear the gospel and so be saved. Closed hearts need only a word from God to open. It was clear to everyone in that Philippian prison that it was God who unshackled the bonds that the enslaved but supposedly free Philippian jailer. That man was free, at least outwardly. But he was bound. He was bound to his own sin. He was bound to the devil. He was in a kingdom of darkness. And it was God who worked through Paul and Silas to break those bonds. They were the ones who were in external chains, but they were the ones who were truly free in Christ. And God set him free as he had done Paul and Silas years before. The bars of one's heart are bent to the will of him who blows where he wills. For all of us, however it happened, whether it was in some flashy, sudden 180 conversion or the seemingly unnoticeable change of heart as a covenant child. However it happened, God began it. God did it. God did it. You didn't. God did. Period. Full stop. End of story. Right? Or is it? Of course, we know that the start is not the end. You could start something and not complete it. Maybe God's just like that. He starts a project, and he doesn't complete it. And our stories are complex. There's a lot of ups and downs, a lot of ebbs and flows, a lot of dynamics and relationships. Maybe God can't handle that complexity. Of course, we wouldn't confess that. We wouldn't say that. But sometimes our hearts incline that way, don't they? As we're anxious. Yeah, he he saved me. He he began the work. but I don't know if he's going to keep... working at it. How patient is he? How insistent in love is he? How long-suffering is he? How kind is he? How gracious is he? Some affirm that God started the work, but its completion is unknown. It's in doubt. It, It hangs in the air. For some, God starts the good work of salvation, but they think that they must carry it through like that English tutor who wrote that first paragraph of the essay for you. You know who who he is. But you had to write the rest of the essay. You had to own it yourself. You had to make it yours. You had to finish it. Yeah, he helped you for the first paragraph, but you had to do the rest. He got you started, and you finish it through. Maybe that's how God works. He gave you new life. He took that dead heart and Made it alive. but that's all he's going to do for you. For some, they think that the good work is a mutual work, that God carries 50% of the load, and then we carry the other end of the load. As if, you know, God's on one side of this log, and we're on the other side of the log, and we're carrying this together. Maybe 50-50 is is too generous for us. Maybe it's 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, 90-10, 95-5, 99-1. We have 1%. We have to contribute to finish this. If, if, if we even had 1%, if 1% depended upon us to carry through with this work of salvation, do you think we would do it? He got me all the way to the finish line. Just, there's a, a centimeter more. I just got to fall over by myself. I can do that. Just enough energy. No. Of course not. These are all wrong-headed ways of thinking about this good work of God's to complete. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul explains how God will complete this good work. And we'll get to that in due time. But for now, he is concerned with giving them the assurance that God will complete this good work. Paul assures them that, that as he looks forward in time to the return of Christ, he sees himself there with Jesus. And he sees these beloved Philippian saints dressed in glory with him. These, his crowning joy, Philippian church, with him, with Jesus. We're very much not like God in this respect, right? How many of us, even here in January, as January is coming to a close, about a month in from our resolutions, if we made them, have been faithful to what we said we would do. How many of us have been faithful to what we said we would do? How many books remain unread? How many tables remain unbuilt? How many forests remain uncleared? How much family time remains unspent? And all the rest. I don't know if John MacArthur was is known for creating this phrase, but he's famous for saying it. If you could lose your salvation, you would. If even 1% of the salvation complex was dependent upon us, it would fail. We would fail. Unlike us, God finishes what he starts. And so from our starting point, from the Philippians starting point in chapter 1, from our starting point, we actually have the end in view. We know how things will end. We have that confidence. Our confidence is not a worldly confidence which is grounded in anything but God. Our confidence is not in our own accomplishments, in our own upbringing, in our own reputation, in our money, in our military rank, in our network, in our connections, in our service, in our knowledge, in our feelings. None of these and anything else you can throw in the mix, nor all of them combined will ever give you the confidence that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. None of that, nor all of that combined can ever give you that confidence. Remember the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Insert confidence here instead of comfort. What is your only confidence in life and in death? that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me, that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. There is your confidence. There is your comfort, grounded in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's right there in Jesus Christ. Look to him who came, lived, died, and rose from the dead so that one day at the day of Jesus Christ, you whose precious lives are his treasured work will be fully, completely in glory. Let's pray. Our glorious, gracious God, we thank you for working in us salvation, for beginning that good work of salvation in us. Through the blood of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Spirit, we thank you for this work. Cause us to be more and more grateful for this work. And give us confidence, we pray, sure knowledge, that you who began it will bring it to completion. And help us and may this confidence guide us in all of our living. Whatever trials come our way, whatever sins and sorrows might beset us, we have this sure foundation that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.